Welcome to the Paleo View. I'm Stacy Toth of PaleoParents.com. You might also know me as the broth lady or the inventor of the hashtag more vegetables than a vegetarian. I'm the co-author of several paleo cookbooks, including Eat Like a Dinosaur, Beyond Bacon, Real Life Paleo. I like to talk about health at any size and self-love and personal acceptance. Specifically, I have a love for lifting heavy things. If you're interested in finding more out about that, you can also find me on Strong Woman Radio. And I'm Dr. Sarah Valentine of thepaleomom.com. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Approach and The Paleo Approach Cookbook. I'm passionate about nutrient density and the intersection of diet and lifestyle with health, which really means I just love talking about science. News and Views, where Sarah and I catch up and you get to listen to our gossip. Kind of a big deal. I'm going to a country that doesn't speak English tomorrow. Whoa. (laughs) I have only ever used my passport for when we went on book tour to Canada, to Toronto. For six hours. For six hours, (laughs) whereby we went to a bookstore and a Costco. (laughs) Um, A Costco that was closed and... We managed to strong arm our way in so that you could see your book. Listen, I was not taking a no for an answer. That was, I just completely had already forgotten that part of the story because it was all about seeing my book in the store. Uh, it was, it was my favorite part of the story. Cause it's like, <laughs> cause they told me no and I don't took who you're I'd... saying no to. Like, that's not going to work. Uh, you're trying she... to say no to Stacy. That's not a thing. I don't think you understand. She doesn't know what the word no, no. means. She, well, she knows how to say it to other people. <laughs> totally. Uh, hearing it, not Stacey's strong suit. So, yeah, it's kind so, of a big deal. I'm... Wie country are you going to? Um, I, with a really terrible, dorky... Not going to bad Germany. Accent. Bad Germany. Not no. going there. Um, so, my father and my sisters and I are taking a cruise down the Mediterranean. So, we are flying into Rome by way of Ireland, and then we are um, going to a couple of ports in Italy and Turkey and Greece. And we're starting off the trip by visiting the town where my grandmother was born and meeting the family um, of hers that still lives there. So it's kind of a big deal. And I've never used my passport before, except for when we went to Toronto. Make sure you get it stamped when you go into all these countries, because you're going to want to be able to look at the stamps in your passport and be like, I went to all these places. Well, it'll be it'll be interesting for sure. And so um, I appreciate you accommodating my request to not record while on a boat. <laughs> so I mean, I'm sure they have super fast internet. But rest assured, Paleo View audience, we will not break our promise to you. Well, no. We still have a show. We, um, we figured these things out. We did plan ahead. You do have show notes. We have a topic today that we're sure will ta- take up 
more than one episode. So we're just going to bang it out. Right. And then, uh, then, then I won't have to worry about it while I'm on, on the cruise and will not audience will still get shows. It'll be magic. I know. So this is the thing about, about technology. That's amazing. And calendars (laughs) When technology meets calendars. It's like magic town. Um, and planning ahead. This is a thing. It's a thing. So this is one of the things I don't think people realize, you know, we typically record uh, like a Sunday or Monday night, sometimes a Tuesday night. And like the show goes live for subscribers by Thursday evening and for the rest of the world by Friday. Um, and like it's one of the reasons why we don't do transcripts because that slows things down. And we've made this this choice with this show in order to be able to keep current and be able to you know have a fast response time. Um, and, um, and we really enjoy, you know, like if we're talking about what's going on in our lives, it's kind of nice for people, you know, we're not talking about Christmas and people listening to it in March, unless they're listening to backdated episodes. Um, and in which I'll, case it's totes your fault guys. Cause right. I know there's some of you doing it right now and we hurt oh, you for it. I mean, it's like when people find us, this is the thing that they do. As they go back and listen to every single episode. And I already apologized. I've apologized many times. We kind of sucked in the beginning. <laughs> and, and a few uh, times in the middle. There was, there, was, there was that bad time. Do you remember the bad time? I remember the bad time. Ooh, there was, that, was, that, was, that was some weeks in a row, that bad time. And, uh, and then, then there, there was, yeah, no. There's, there's quality has been an up and down experience. Let's just put it that way. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so people do do that and it's, it's a cool thing. I actually really think that it's quite the, um, compliment that people like what they hear enough from like one recent episode that they're interested in going back to this entire, like we're, we're coming up to close to 200 episodes now. Like that's, pretty darned epic and we have never missed a week so um back to the the point before that was we try very very hard to have a fairly short lag time between when we record and when people get to listen to the show compared to other people who you know in order to make a podcast work within their schedule you know it's actually relatively common for people to record three or even six months worth of podcasts within a week and then do all of the post-production on them sort of slowly over time um, but to have these like really concentrated times. And I feel like certainly the way Stacy and I relate to each other and for me, the amount of um, research that these take to do well. And um, I think we are better in this more spaced out model compared to, uh, can you imagine talking to me for hours a day, every day for like a week straight? I don't think I would, I think you'd shoot I don't me. Th- I don't think either one of us would do well in that model. No, I would say I would say no to you, and then you'd be like, "Who are you saying no to, girl?" <laughs> We'd be uh, real punchy by the and end, <laughs> then, and then it would be the end, and then there would be yes. Uh, so, um, so it's it's fun when we get to to plan ahead like this and record more than one show in a short period of time, but it doesn't happen. Uh, it's not our it's our normal mode of operation, shall we say? Um, right. But we have actually a great topic. I think this will actually take us. I think we'll actually be talking about it on the other side of your cruise too, because I think um, I think this is going to take us through at least three shows. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of excited. We're gonna, it's it's going to be all tangential to 
the overall arching topic about of weight loss. And um, we're going to talk about uh, a couple different, well, three different studies. So each episode is going to have a study sort of anchoring it. And then a lot of not just the uh, geeky science, but the real world implications around that research, because there has been, I think, quite a surge in um, obesity research, weight loss research, and weight loss maintenance research. And it's um, it, because it's such a, um, a common way for people to enter paleo. So I always sort of say there's like three different major communities that come into paleo. So it's the uh, performance people. So people who are um, elite athletes who, who are in seek of you seeking refinement of their nutrition in order to optimize performance. Um, then there's people who are looking to mitigate disease. So whether it's autoimmune disease or diabetes or some kind of chronic health problem, and they're looking for a diet that will help them manage and potentially reverse their health problem. And then there's weight loss. And so there's people who are coming to paleo to look for a solution to uh, sustainably and healthily lose weight. And there's some overlap certainly between these communities, right? So there's elite athletes that are dealing with disease and there's people who are overweight and dealing with disease. Like there's this, there is certainly overlap in, in, you know, people can be from more than one of these communities coming into paleo. And, but these are sort of the main or most common motivators for people coming into this, into this uh, way of life. And so because of that, you know, I really think that research in those three areas, right? Research in weight loss, research in um, the links between diet and lifestyle and disease, and of course the links in the research into uh, performance optimization are all typically especially relevant to the paleo community because so many of us come to paleo in order to to um, meet those sort of related health goals. So, um, and I think that it's also really important. This is a good place to sort of remind people that paleo is a template. Um, it's currently, um, a, uh, set of dietary guidelines from which there's lots of room for self-experimentation and individualization that is based on our best current understanding of, um, how individual foods support or undermine health. And it is a, um, continuing, you know, it's a, it's a fluid thing. So more science comes in that adds to our understanding. And sometimes that shifts opinions a little bit. So paleo is something that has shifted and evolved and grown over the gosh, like 15 years since the paleo diet was first, the first book on the paleo diet was first published. And so it's, it's something that, um, because it's, it's rooted in science and science is not fixed, right? We don't know everything. Science is continuing to be performed. It's a diet that, as more science is performed, absorbs that information and evaluates it critically and then goes, okay, so how, do, how is this applicable? Um, does this change things? And that can be confusing for some people because I think a lot of people come to paleo from this firm set of rules, right? The other diets they've ever tried have been eat this, don't eat this, measure this, right? And it and paleo you know, the, the sort of beginner way of explaining it is a set of rules. But as you get deeper into this community, you realize there's a lot of gray areas. There's a lot of try this, see how you feel type things. Um, there's a lot of tweaking. You can tweak up and down. You can, 
you know, there's extra foods to focus on, extra foods that you can try removing, right? There's a lot of different moving parts and it can get overwhelming really, really quickly. Um, but I think that it's, it's most important to just take that step back and go like the reason why there's so many moving parts is because, um, science is such an amazing thing. And because there's still the right, there's not, um, we don't have, so nutrigenomics, right? The understanding of where nutrition meets genetics is a fairly new field. And we're a ways away from being able to like, Take, you know, look at your DNA and say, here's your optimal prescription for what to eat. Um, so what we do is we kind of go like, here's your great starting place and here's all the places where you can individualize and see how you feel. And what's amazing about that is there's so much flexibility to make it work for an individual's lifestyle. So you can you can figure out how to paleo that is works the best for your body, right? Makes you feel the healthiest but also is the most sustainable, like the thing that you can actually stick to day to day and find that that wonderful area of sustainability in between those two things. And so um, so that's why talking about new science is really cool um, because sometimes it helps us inform how we tinker with paleo, how we, um, how we interpret some of these gray areas and how we can, um, how we can modify in order to, adapt paleo to best suit our individual health goals. So I think, I think science is cool is what I'm trying to say. That's my, that's my end. Science is cool. I'm shocked to hear it. Just shocked. I know. Nobody would ever think that I would love science. I never. I I, I want to do like the little like nerdy glass poking. <laughs> snort. <laughs> I can't snort without coughing afterwards. Oh, that's terrible. That would be a really cool thing if I could do that. I like created like a massive like <clears throat> scratchy throat by snorting. I snorted way too far back in my throat. That should have been a nasal snort, and it so wasn't. <laughs> uh, it's a good thing you can't see me right now. Uh, maybe we should just jump in. So this was a scientific study that you uh, pointed me to that you were really excited about. So why don't you introduce it? All right. So I actually found it by way of the interwebs, not by a scientific study. <laughs> um, and I'm sure most people will have heard of because it went kind of viral um, shortly, very shortly thereafter going on to, I think, like BuzzFeed and all kinds of sites that it was on. And it was on like the major like. The article that you sent me was a New York Times yeah. article. Yeah. Um, but what I really liked about the article was that it had a reference to a scientific art, scientific article and study. And so I was like, hey, this is this is legit. We can actually talk about this. Um, but the article itself was focused on how Biggest Loser, um, one guy in particular, but Biggest Losers always kind of rebound and have a difficult time um, keeping weight off as they uh, come out of the ranch or whatever it is that they call it. And, you and know, we call it the ranch. We've, we've talked several times about, you know, paleo and weight loss and healthier ways to lose, lose weight. And, you know, there's kind of general guidelines around, you know, a healthy, um, amount of weight to lose is one to two pounds a week. I know when I was at the peak of paleo weight loss and I was breastfeeding, I was losing more than that. 
Um, and I also had some, you know, health hormonal rebound issues. Um, but I, I do know that a lot of people were asking questions during that time period too, um, about some of the effects that happen from when you lose weight, especially a significant amount of weight. And so I thought it would be interesting to tackle some of those topics and those questions that we get, um, simply because this article was it's in the forefront of discussion, talking about it in paleo context, especially scientific would be helpful. I know that I saw comments on, you know, um, paleo type pages and social media like, well, that would never happen if they had done paleo. And so, you know, while there's truth to the fact that, you know, putting someone in an environment that's unsustainable, eating an amount of food that their body goes into starvation mode and, you know, putting them on hours and hours of cardio exercise and then like just releasing them into the regular world to go back at the sedentary job and um, be faced with cake in the office is not going to set them up for success. I also feel like, you know, it's not, it wasn't the response that I was hoping that people would intelligently bring to a conversation just to say like, well, that, that wouldn't happen if they had gone paleo. Um, because I, I do think that no matter how you lose weight, if you're losing a significant amount of weight, that there are some things that will occur that aren't so great. I mean, we've talked before about like extra skin and um, right. you're going to talk a little bit about, you know, like release of hormones and there's just, there's a variety of things. Your, you know, your fat stores stuff. And so when you get rid of the fat, that, that stuff goes places. So, um, and that's no matter how you lose weight, but you know, the question that people would ask me, well, like, aren't you so concerned that, you know, you're either going to rebound or you're going to have all this extra skin or that your hormones are being released and all of that was like, well, I mean, I'd rather just deal with that than be morbidly obese and miserable. Like if those are my two choices, like I'm not going to use that as an excuse not to lose weight, but um, it still exists. And so I think it's it's good to have this kind of um, uh, critical eye as we've, I forget what we called it before, where we talked about how, you know, we can't just, as people say, well, that wouldn't happen if it was paleo. Or I think it was in the context of the meat thing, Sarah, that you dissected. It was, you know, mm -hmm. like we were talking about, you can't just say, well, they didn't use grass-fed meat because that's that's not the point, right? We don't read something like this and say that wouldn't happen if it were paleo. We look at it and we say, you know, what what is what are the scientific mechanisms that is causing this and what can we avoid if that's our goal in order to be our healthiest and what can we expect to happen no matter what? I think is where I was trying to go with it. Yeah, so let's let's take a step backwards and kind of talk about weight loss research um, in general, because there is this whole battle of like my diet's better than yours. Um, is it better to lose weight quickly versus lose weight slowly? Um, and some of the research is actually really surprising. So um, you know, there's the, in the background here leading up to this paper um, about the the Biggest Loser um, uh, people is uh, there's some interesting facts. So one is research shows that um, it doesn't matter what diet you're on as long as you're on a diet. So the most important thing when it comes to weight loss is that you're being mindful of your eating. Um, low carb and low fat diets basically tie each other in terms of their effective of weight, 
effectiveness of weight loss. There's one study that pits paleo against some other diet strategies and shows that it gives a slight advantage to how people lose weight. But over two years, there the the study participants um, gained some of the weight back. So they had sort of their lowest weight at, I think, I can't remember if exactly it was 12 months or 18 months, but at 24 months, they had gained part of the weight back. So that in science happens with the paleo diet as well. Um, and there's also this collection of studies that show that um, rapid weight loss may actually increase your chances of maintaining it. So this is sort of contrary to the stereotypical recommendations of slow weight loss um, and that one to two pounds a week is really good from a sort of hormonal perspective to make sure you're losing fat and not um, lean body mass. Um, but there's also this like slight kink in that and it's probably a psychological thing. So there's probably an aspect of losing weight really quickly that is a really, really big boost psychologically that um, somehow incentivizes people to work harder to maintain it. So that's actually really, I think, the the big thing right now in obesity research is there's lots of strategies for getting people to lose weight. There's lots of diets that work to lose weight. There's not a magic, this diet's better than this diet. What's hard is maintaining it. And studies generally show that um, only about... 20% of people maintain weight loss after being on a weight loss program, no matter what the program. There's a few like studies where that's a little bit different. Right? There's a study that's like 27%. This study's 33%. But it's generally about, you know, about four out of five people gain the weight back. And that's one of the big problems, right? So you're losing weight. I mean, ideally, we want to maintain that weight loss. And I know that I, I had like the classic, I mean, a really classic experience. I went on a low carbohydrate diet in my early 20s. I lost 100 pounds over the course of about a year. I did some silly things like taking up marathoning. I had a health crisis um, that removed my high level of activity, which was my device for maintaining my weight loss. And I gained back like 130 pounds or more. I actually stopped weighing myself. I don't actually know exactly how heavy I got. Um, and then I really struggled. It didn't matter what I did. I really struggled with my weight. And it's a very, like, the, I mean, that's sort of the same experience that some of these Biggest Loser um, uh, alumni have, have experienced. But it's also, I think, a all too common experience for obese people is to work really hard to lose the weight. And then um, whether it's life gets away from you, there's illness, there's a stressful period, or it just doesn't make sense, the weight comes back on. And that's why this, this Biggest Loser study was so interesting is because it shed some light on what actually might be happening. So what, like a step back, like you, yes, you were right that, um, that it was not the diet they were following was not paleo. Um, and um, it really was a calories in, calories out model. They were doing like six, seven, eight, nine hours of activity a day for that three months um, and restricting calories. So they were trying to create at least a 3,500 a day caloric deficit um, so that, you know, like a pound a day purely from a calories in, calories out model. 
And um, that is fast enough, you know, to create some hormone changes so that, you know, the body's like, wow, this this is really not enough food, right? So the, the hormone changes from fast weight loss are a little bit different than the hormone changes from graduate weight loss. And this might be um, the best argument for slower weight loss as being a healthier way to lose weight. Um, but, um, but what's really interesting about The Biggest Losers, and this is something that the New York Times article did not actually spell out, is that they actually have a much higher um, percent of them that maintained a greater than 10% um, weight loss over six years compared to other studies. So 57% of the Biggest Losers pe people maintained at least a 10% weight loss. I mean, there was four of them out of the 14 in the study that were heavier at the end of six years um, than they were before they went on Biggest Loser. And all of them but one gained at least some of the weight back. Um, but when you compare that to 20% as being normal, um, it's sort of an interesting statistics. And the authors um, um, hypothesized that it could be due to the public nature of their weight loss yeah, and this being be some, extra, some extra pressure to work hard to maintain it. Um, cause when you actually like look at interviews of all of them, they're all talking about like how much work they go through to maintain, to monitor and maintain their, their weight loss. Um, you know, like they're still exercising and figuring out how to exercise three hours a day in the, with their desk jobs, right? Like they work, they work a full, a full-time week and then they still are trying to find 20, 20, 25, 30 hours a week to exercise, which is a very large, that's a whole second full-time job almost. Um, so, um, but here's what, here's what the paper, sh um, showed that was absolutely fascinating. And that was that there was a really substantial decrease in their resting metabolic rate at the end of their 30 weeks living on the ranch. And at the end of six years, not only had their resting metabolic rate not recovered, independent of how much weight they gained back or whether they continued to lose weight, like whether they were back to their starting point or not, was actually slightly worse. So um, they, on average, had their resting metabolic rate. So that's the number of calories you burn doing nothing, um, reduced by 600 calories a day after the 30 weeks. And it was closer to 700 calories a day by six years later. And that was shocking to the researchers. It um, Nobody's ever looked at this high level of weight loss over this long period of time. So this is a really um, like the first paper to really investigate this. Um, but they showed that there was basically this um, dial down of the metabolism that um, wasn't, wasn't regained. Um, and they looked at things like leptin and showed that leptin, so leptin is a hunger hormone and um, basically, um, you know, high, uh, let's see now, low leptin makes you hungry um, and high leptin makes you full. So when you eat, leptin goes up. In between meals, leptin goes down. It's sort of the, the opposite of ghrelin and they kind of counteract each other. Um, but leptin also is what's called an adiposity signal. So it's signaling to the brain whether or not you've eaten, but it's also signaling to the brain uh, how much body fat you have stored. And so typically the higher body fat you have stored, the lower your leptin. And it's sort of a way of your body 
um, basically saying, hey, we're good. We have got lots of stored energy. We don't need to eat anymore. But there's a thing called leptin resistance, which is sort of the same as insulin resistance and diabetes, where the signals get broken and leptin can go up and up and up and your body is still leptin resistant. And what's really interesting about leptin is that it also mediates the adaptation to fasting. So when you fast, uh, your leptin goes down, um, which makes you hungrier. And uh, so when you're leptin resistant, your leptin's not signaling. And when you're fasting, your leptin's, your leptin's plummeting. So what happened with these people is they came in with um, blood levels of leptin at like 40, 41 nanograms per mils. After the 30 weeks, it was down to 2.5 nanograms per milliliters. But then after six years, it had only come back about halfway. So their leptin was still, like they're basically still hungrier is what that meant. So they had increased hunger signals to their brains. I mean, even the, the participants who had gained back more weight than they had lost still didn't have the same levels of leptin as when they before they started. Um, and you combine that with some other studies showing um, – Increased food cravings, and it's probably uh, like a dopamine response, although um, exactly how that works is, is a little bit misunderstood. It's not fully understood. So we know that um, uh, being obese has chemical changes in the, ba- in the brain that are the same as addiction, um, which basically means that we're craving more food and we don't feel as satisfied when we eat that food and we give in to that craving. So we want to eat more and more and more in order to satisfy a craving. And, um, and so we know that these people, you know, sort of reported having way increased craving and much more binge eating behaviors and an inability to, um, control how they were eating. So they would go on these like super, super strict, no, I got to keep everything together. And then they would just basically lose it. And, you know, one of them was saying like, I can't ever have that treat because if I have it, you know, twice in a week, that completely derails me. And so, um, so between increased cravings and increased hunger and slower metabolism, you know, what this research is basically saying was like, no wonder these people gain back weight. They're basically, you know, their bodies are fighting to gain it back. Um, and it was fascinating to sort of see the damage to metabolism, which I mean, Hunger hormones feed into metabolism. What was really interesting was they did measure thyroid, and their thyroid uh, function, their thyroid um, was not really substantially different. There was actually a little bit of an increase in T3 at six years compared to their baseline before going into Biggest Loser. So you can't say, "Oh well, this fasting was a stress on the thyroid," and that's like it's it's really hard to sort of say like mechanistically what's going on, it looks like it's a collection of different hormones, different adaptations to to fasting like leptin and adiponectin and insulin. So they actually were no more insulin sensitive after six years as they were before they started this diet, um, independent of whether they maintained a 10% weight loss or not. And, um, and so, uh, and they had about the same um, lipid panel at six years compared to when they started. Um, so it's it's a really interesting thing to sort of get, okay, the body. Can I ask a question? Yeah. So you said some of them had gained back weight, but you said all of them had the same all, lipid panel. So yeah, all th- but one had gained back weight um, and four were heavier 
um, four were heavier at the end of six years than before they went on Biggest Loser. Um, but their lipids were uh, – so their triglycerides – triglycerides came down um, during the study or during the, the 30 weeks on the ranch and uh, were kind of in between, so at the end of six years. So their triglycerides, which is, I think, arguably the more important measurement, um, had – like it had – it was it – it had come down with the weight loss and then it had come up a little bit. So the triglycerides on average – I've got it in front of me – were 128, which is pretty high um, at baseline, so before Biggest Loser, 57.4, which is a great low number – um, at the end of the 30 weeks, and then back up, so they were midway at 92.9 following the six years. Um, LDL was pretty much consistent across the board, and HDL was pretty much c- consistent across the board. So losing weight and gaining it back didn't affect um, total cholesterol very much or LDL or HDL. It's, it's an interesting point that I hope that they flesh out as well because it's consistent with a lot of the research that we've read too about. Um, triglycerides being important, LDL, um, all of all of that kind of stuff related to um, health and inflammation, and you know these people are most of them, even if they've still gained some weight back, are probably still making well, healthier life choices. So yeah. it's it's fascinating that you know there's a correlation there. You know, so one of the things is is that their cholesterol was considered normal. And um, so their total cholesterol is all under 200 for this entire time. Um, And their triglycerides are only marginally elevated. They're in like the moderate range. And so one of the things that these contestants had to actually pass a battery of tests to prove that they were healthy enough for the show. So it really was the selection process was taking the healthiest morbidly obese people that they could get for the show. So that actually probably meant that they were starting, they were already starting in a low risk or um, cardiovascular risk factor group. Um, It doesn't actually talk about what their blood pressure was. So I don't, I don't know, which would be another major risk factor, but it was, that might be artificial. It might have to do much more with the fact that, um, these people were hand selected as people who were considered healthy enough to endure the high levels of exercise and yeah, low caloric intake, right? So, um, but this is this is to me this is the take home from this study, and this is this rapid weight loss causing a massive slowdown in metabolism. That's not unique to this study, right? So we've seen that in many many studies um, that rapid weight loss, and in part is because when you lose weight rapidly. You lose lean body mass at the same time as you lose lose fat mass. And that, by the way, we'll talk about this in actually in a couple of shows, but that doesn't matter if you're eating low carb or ketogenic or low fat or just calorie restriction and and, and moderate macros. Um, the faster, like, and in fact, a new study, we're going to talk about this in a couple of shows, but a, a new study is showing that a ketogenic diet, um, you may actually lose more lean body mass and less fat than a more balanced macronutrient, just straight calorie restriction. And so, um, and so the, you know, the thing is, is you lose muscle, your muscle is what's burning energy throughout the day. And, um, and so that's, what's decreasing. That's part of at least what's decreasing, um, your arresting metabolic 
great. What's really interesting about these people is as they gained weight back, their lean body mass was still in proportion. So the whole time, their um, the changes like it wasn't like they just they lost a lot of lean body mass and then they gained only back fat. When they gained weight back, they gained back more muscle too, and they still continued to have a lower metabolic rate. So that's where hormones are feeding in. So there's this like part where you want to have a lot of muscle in your body. And then there's this other part where you want to have really balanced, well-regulated hormones that are actually signaling efficiently. And that is probably where this rapid weight loss is having the most damage, and that is in hormone regulation. And they certainly showed that leptin is definitely uh, part of the the question. Adiponectin also changed pretty dramatically. Um, it, uh, it plummeted. No, it no, it didn't. It increased during the study and then it like doubled over the six years. So it went from a low number to an even higher number to an even higher number, which is counterintuitive. It should have gone back down. So um, and they they didn't provide any kind of um, analysis in their discussion about what the implications of a diponectin changing in that way, in that sort of counterintuitive way. Um, but in part because adiponectin is not as well understood as, as leptin in terms of how it relates to um, metabolism. But um, but so it's really important to sort of understand that rapid weight loss has these other um, consequences. And, um, and what it meant for the Biggest Loser people is that the effort that they had to put in for weight maintenance was – um, weight loss maintenance was greater than they had to put in for weight loss, which is why, because the effort they're putting in for weight loss was so extreme, all but one of them basically couldn't maintain it because um, they just couldn't maintain that level of caloric restriction or that high level of activity. Um, and especially like as you're, as your um, uh, resting metabolic rate goes down makes that math even harder. And actually what was really fascinating was that they on average were burning about 800 calories less than you would expect for somebody with that body weight and that body composition. So, um, so you know, there's a, a, a formula for what you can sort of guesstimate what somebody's metabolic rate is going to be based on how much they weigh, what percent body fat, what percent water, what percent muscle <laughs> that they have, you can be, okay, this person's going to burn, you know, 1,500 or 2,000 calories a day at a, at a resting state. Um, and then you can also like really accurately measure it. So in the study, they accurately measured it with some complex, cool stuff involving radioactive oxygen and all kinds of cool things. But um, they, um, not radioactive, oxygen isotopes, it's a different thing. Um, but um, they were actually able to measure the disparity between the person's actual resting metabolic rate and what you would predict based on age and, and size and body composition. So, um, so that's also kind of like a, huh, that sucks for them because they're basically faced with this massive uphill battle for weight loss maintenance. Um, so it begs the question, what's a better way to do it? And I know the paleo community is all like, they would have been fine with paleo, but we don't really have 
a study to show that. And I know my experience and your experience within the paleo community is maintaining our 100 pound plus weight losses takes effort. I would never say that eating paleo has made maintaining my weight loss effortless. Um, I still have to be mindful about portion sizes. I still have to be mindful about how much sleep I'm getting, which is a major input for me. I still have to be mindful about um, not giving in to sugar cravings. I still have to exert some, let's call it uh, commitment rather than discipline. Um, I still have to think about stress. I still have to think about activity. Like uh, it's, it's easier than it was before, but it's not like, aha, I just eat chicken breast and broccoli and all my problems go away. And I think that it would be really, I think it really misrepresents what this entire movement is about to make claims like, well, if those people just lost their 200 plus pounds following paleo, clearly they would maintain it effortlessly. I got nothing. You covered all the things. You don't want to add to the rant? What? I thought that was like so no, you dropped, up for ranting. You just dropped the mic. I can't. I know. I, I did. I did a that. little bit. Uh, so, but I mean, I do want to make sure that people understand that you were the one who texted me the New York Times article and said, we should so talk about that. I did, well, I, I did that in the beginning and then you just like slashed through all the science and got on a soapbox and I'm like... I behind was, you with my fist in the air like yeah i was so happy that the paper was uh public access because <laughs> <laughs> i was like oh, i want to read this paper i don't want to pay 50 bucks for it i really hope it's free um and we can actually make sure that the link to the new york times article which is a really good thorough summary of what these people are going through including some quotes from them and some quotes from the researchers and some other experts in the field and um we can make sure that the link to the uh paper which was published in the journal obesity just uh last week this week it was just it was just published we can make sure that that link is in the, is in the um show notes too so people can go and read it for themselves i think it's really really interesting and i think um the take home message is weight loss is hard maintaining weight loss is harder there's no magic formula um and it, it takes it takes dedication um that being said you know, I think this is something that we'll talk about in upcoming episodes. There are lots of things that we can do to set ourselves up for success. And um, and maybe that's something we should cover in our next show. But it's 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 not hopeless. It's definitely and and we're, you know, proof that it can be done. Um, but it's it's not um there's no like magic elixir for aha. Now I'm going to be supermodel thin. I'm ready. All right. You're ready. All right. So um, we're going to tackle this topic some more in upcoming episodes. In fact, it's there's been so much research on um, sort of weight loss topics lately that this will be a whole series. Um, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. All the things. I have notes today. (laughs) 
fancy. Uh, no, two pages of them. It's like, it's like I prepared or something. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.